Great Father of glory, Almighty Lord, Eternal Ruler, we give You praise and thanks for Your holy, wise, good, and righteous. We praise You for the work of creation, for all the beautiful wonders of the world, the turning of the seasons, the rivers, lakes, and oceans, the flowers and trees, the great variety of animals and insects, the moon, stars, planets, and distant galaxies, the sunshine that warms the earth and the rain that nourishes it. All these are Your handiwork and show forth Your glory and Your majesty and Your wisdom. We praise You for making man, male and female, in Your image and likeness, for crowning Adam as the King of creation and giving him a noble calling. Oh, Father, we bless You for even though Adam rebelled and we in him, You extended a promise of grace a pledge to send a new Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam, the seed of the woman, the Son of God, to defeat the tempter and to restore creation. Oh, Father, we praise You for sending Jesus Christ, Your eternal and only begotten Son, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law and to make us Your children through faith in Him. We thank You for the free gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we praise You for sending Your Holy Spirit through Your Son to renew and unite Your people, to form the church, and to assure us of Your love, and to enable us to repent and believe, to obey and persevere. O Father, we worship You with Your Son and Your Spirit. We worship You, Father, for creating the church, the body and bride of Christ, Your temple and Your city. We thank You for the means of grace, for the fellowship and discipline of the church. We thank You for keeping us in the faith through the care and nurture of the church. Father, we praise You for our families, for servant-hearted parents, for loving spouses, for faithful children and grandchildren. Father, we praise You for our callings, for assigning us meaningful and purposeful work, for providing our daily bread, for giving us gifts and abilities we can use in service to others and for the furtherance of Your kingdom in the world. Oh, Father, we pray that our lives would reflect the reign of Your Son in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Father, we praise You for all these things, for You are the Creator and Ruler, our Sustainer and Redeemer with Your Son and the Spirit. We give You all glory and honor and we offer ourselves to Your service and to the work of Your kingdom. Hear our prayer. Be pleased with our praises this day and forever. This we pray in Christ's name to You, O Father, and in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our lesson for today is going to continue on in Matthew chapter 14. This is verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, 
He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's good and true and right. I pray now, Father, that your spirit would come and he would do mighty things through your word. Father, would you be pleased now to come and do a good work in us by your spirit, just as the spirit worked in the midst of darkness and chaos. Father, we want your spirit to come now and do good work in us, form us, shape us more and more into people who think and look and talk like the Lord Jesus. Would you come now and do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so our passage today is in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. And what we see here is really two very different stories about two very different kings. In many ways, Matthew's gospel is about how King Jesus inaugurates his kingdom here on earth and how his king and his kingdom reign and rule and triumph over all of the other various counterfeit kingdoms that set themselves, up, set themselves up against the Lord Jesus. The struggle of the Christian life that we face is that we live each day in the tension between the fact that King Jesus has come and he's inaugurated his kingdom, but we are still eagerly awaiting the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So today we're going to look at Matthew's gospel to learn more about what it means that we say Jesus is our king and what is his kingdom all about. And we're going to learn more about King Jesus and his kingdom really by juxtaposing his kingdom with another kingdom we read about uh, in our first passage, King Herod. This is an evil king who very poignantly represents Satan and his dark kingdom of evil. So let's turn out the passage we read and let's, let's dig into what we found here. Our passage begins with a statement about how word was now beginning to spread about the fame of Jesus and all the glorious things he's doing to reveal himself and reveal his kingdom. And so Matthew says now that even some of the most important people in the region are beginning to notice Jesus and they're trying to figure out who is this person. In verse 1, we see that the word has come to this local ruler who locally is a pretty powerful guy, Herod the Tetrarch. And he's starting to hear things about Jesus. Now, this is not the Herod at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, He tries to kill Jesus when he was born. This is one of Herod's sons. He also goes by the name of Herod Antipas. This will be the Herod that Jesus goes to at the end of Matthew's gospel when he's arrested. And so Herod is hearing all these spectacular things about Jesus and what he's doing. And you get a sense he's, he's trying to figure it out. Just like the people in Nazareth right before our passage He's trying to understand how it is that Jesus is doing all of these things. So he comes up with a theory, a bit of a conspiracy theory, uh, that this must have been John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. Here, figures he doesn't know of anyone else who has the ability to do these powerful things. So here really is the same problem that all unbelievers do. He can't accept the plain reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so he's got to come up with another way to avoid the truth and explain away all these things that he is hearing and seeing himself. 
So then in verses 3 through 12, we get a quick story that's almost an aside to the main narrative in Matthew's gospel. Matthew wants to explain to us how it was that John the Baptist was killed. Then a few verses later, we see our second story in verses 13 through 21, one of the most well-known stories in all the gospels, how Jesus feeds this very large crowd. It's at least 5,000 men. And so if we want to include families, women and children, it easily could have been seven Maybe 10,000 people were present this day. Our modern translations break up the stories in the Gospels, but it's really clear when you read these two stories that they need to go side by side so we can understand uh, what it is that's happening here and the, and the things that are being said. So quickly now, let's look at the details of each of these stories and think about these two different kingdoms that we see. What's our first story about in verses 1 through 12? It's about King Herod. This is a story that's all about death. It's about physical death. It's about spiritual death. It's a gruesome story. It's a violent story about sin and evil conspiring to murder the last and greatest prophet to come before Jesus, John the Baptist. It's about a king who's addicted to himself and the fleeting worldly praise of man. A king who would really rather murder than have people think poorly of him. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist was killed after he was first thrown in prison. And he's in prison because he spoke out against Herod's choice of a wife. Uh, He was married to Herodias, his half-brother Philip's wife. As you read the story, it's obvious, isn't it, that Herodias is really the one calling the shot. She clearly wears the pants uh, in this relationship with Herod. She's almost like a Lady Macbeth character. She's working behind the scenes to control and manipulate Herod to have him do something pretty terrible. Uh, Matthew says in verse 3, it's really only because of her that he's even put John in jail in the first place. But verse 6 tells us that an opportunity finally arises for Herodias to kill John. This is an opportunity that she cannot pass up. So Herod's having a birthday bash, and as part of the festivities, Herodias' daughter, we're told, comes and dances before Herod in front of this company of people. Now, maybe Herod has had a little too much to drink at this point, but he's so entertained by this girl's dance that he does something that no parent should ever do. He says, I'll give her whatever she wants. In Mark's gospel, we're told that he vows to give her up to half of his entire kingdom. Talk about a bargain, huh? Uh, She could have asked for anything. She could have secured an army that would protect her and follow her around everywhere. She could have asked for piles of gold or treasure or a palace full of dresses fit for a queen, but instead she makes a very strange and a very morbid request. We're told that the girl is prompted by her mother to make this request to have John the Baptist killed and have his head presented on a serving dish right there in front of everyone at the party. And this request makes Herod sorry, we're told. There's a sense that Herod feels a conflict here. And he feels a conflict not because he has a problem killing anyone, but because maybe he likes John. Maybe because he understands that John's a popular guy and this could cause him quite a public backlash. But at this point, Herod is stuck with this very public oath that he made. And he's not going to go back on and look foolish. Herod's evil pride is so pathetic that, think about this, he would rather kill someone than have someone think poorly of him. So Herod gives the order in this very perverse, this very grisly scene ensues, the severed head 
of the greatest prophet before Jesus is presented by a young girl here at a party. And it's all because of her mother who's found great satisfaction in the death of one of the greatest prophets to ever live. This is a wicked scene. This is very sadistic. So we're told that John the Baptist take the body away and they relate to Jesus what happened to John. That's our first story that we read. Let's look now and think about the second story that comes right after this in verses 13 through 21. This is about another king with another very different kingdom. And when you contrast this story with what we've just read, this story is really about life. It's about abundant life being given by King Jesus to needy people, to hungry people. This story doesn't take place in a palace that's filled with partygoers gorging themselves on a royal feast. But it is a royal feast in many ways. A feast that will make Herod's party look pitiful and boring. This is a feast that takes place in a desert. A feast whose goal is not entertainment or hedonism, but instead real nourishment that's going to be given by King Jesus, the bread of life. So just like God fed Israel while they're in the wilderness in the Old Testament times, God's going to do this again through Jesus. Let's quickly look at this story and think about uh, what we read here. So we're told that when Jesus hears about John, he withdraws by himself to a boat to be by himself to a desolate place. We don't know really exactly where he is, but you get the idea that it's the middle of nowhere. And the crowds begin to hear about where Jesus is located, and they begin to show up in almost paparazzi-like fashion. Word begins quickly spreading for miles and miles around that Jesus is here. And so this crowd begins to swell and swell and swell until a, a crowd the size that could populate a small city shows up at this location. Now, if you read the Gospels, especially Matthew, the crowds almost act like a character in the story all to themselves. So who who would these people have been? These people would not have included the rich or the well-educated or the socially elite. This crowd would have included thousands of people from tiny little hamlets, tiny little villages, people who lived in very real poverty. These were people who starved to death and died when their crops didn't grow. And when they got sick, they died. And if they've assembled during the day today, that means they didn't work that day, which means that nobody ate at all that day. So look again what Matthew says starting at the beginning of the story in verse 14. We're told that when Jesus comes ashore, he sees this enormous crowd of people, hungry, poor people. And we're told he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. In the same story, Mark's gospel read that Jesus is saying that Uh, We're told that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a very powerful statement in and of itself about how Jesus loves people, but I'm especially struck by this when considering what we just read about Herod. Think about this for a second. Herod and Jesus are both famous. They have lots of people that want to follow them, but for very different reasons. King Herod is obsessed with himself and selfishly does whatever he has to do to achieve worldly fame. Herod is so pitifully addicted to the approval of people, again, that he would rather have John killed than to look bad in front of dinner guests. In Herod's world, people are used and consumed in order to fill up a leaking ego. But think about the fact that Herod really doesn't control people nearly as much as he's controlled by other people. Herod is a slave of the people. 
But contrast this with King Jesus and what we just read. Jesus is a servant of poor people, people who are feeble, people who are sick, people who have little to no worldly power or influence, people who really don't have much to offer Jesus in return. And he's not obsessed with obtaining worldly fame. He doesn't seek the crowds out so they can prop up a sagging self-esteem or give Jesus a boost in his public approval ratings. Jesus' kingdom is clearly a kingdom of grace where needy, hungry people come to freely feast on God's goodness and his blessings. And so what we see here in these two stories is also two very different versions of fame, two very different versions of glory. In Herod, we see fame that seeks the approval of man in a narcissistic way, a fame that seeks other people's approval for self-worship. But in Jesus, we see fame that is about true, lasting glory. Glory that is revealed by Jesus giving abundant life and mercy to undeserving, weak people. Here's what we need to see about how Jesus serves and what this means for us. Jesus shows us that the pathway to the glory you were made to experience comes through humble service, not self-exaltation. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to say, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He'll say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what do we see Jesus doing here? We see Jesus embodying the very things he calls his people to do. Jesus shows us that his glory will come through sacrificial service, through humbling ourselves to serve others, to exalt others above ourselves. This is the great paradox of the Christian life, that life will come only through death through giving ourselves away, pouring ourselves out. This is precisely the opposite of how all the counterfeit kingdoms of this earth tell us that you will find glory. Our flesh, the world around us, tells us us that glory comes through exalting yourself by grabbing a hold of as much gratification and power and influence and money and pleasure that you can for yourself. Satan's counterfeit kingdom wants you to believe that glory will come by being devoted to the kingdom of self, self-promotion, self-protection, self-absorption, and lots of other self-words. But Jesus shows us that glory, true glory, it will never be achieved this way. People of God, ask yourself this morning, could you be missing the glory you were made to know because you don't really believe that glory could be found by giving your life up? and giving your life away in the service of King Jesus? Could some of the anger and the frustration you feel in your life be coming from the fact that you've been chasing after a counterfeit glory of a selfish life? Hey, what else do we see? What else do we see when we think about these two passages? We also see a sharp contrast between King Jesus and King Herod when you look at the treatment of the weak. In King Herod's kingdom, the weak are used. They're exploited by more powerful people. You see this plainly in how Herodias treats her own daughter to satisfy her bloodlust. Concern for her younger, weaker child is not on Herodias' list of priorities. She doesn't even hesitate to make her own child an accomplice to murder. That is a dark picture of human depravity, isn't it? 
Her girl is just a pawn that is selfishly used and ruthlessly exploited. But what does King Jesus do when he sees this enormous crowd of people who are sick, who are hungry, who are weak? We're told he's moved with pity. He devotes his time and his energy to them. Compassion is what sets the scene for Jesus feeding this large crowd in our passage. We're told that he comes ashore, he sees their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, and he's moved with compassion. So in King Jesus' kingdom, people show compassion and mercy to the suffering and the weak. This is why throughout the Gospels, you can see Jesus' heart for children for people who are suffering, for people who are very sick, for people, again, who have very little or nothing to offer King Jesus in return. So what this means for us is that how we treat the weak in God's kingdom is a very big deal. Our treatment of the weak will always reveal whose kingdom we are giving our allegiance to. In King Jesus' kingdom, people don't thumb their noses at the weak, They don't cast the weak aside because they're unworthy of our time and our energy. Instead, the weak are loved. They're cared for. And we can begin to model Jesus' love and care for the weak whenever we can begin to just stop. In the midst of our busyness of our our lives, we just stop and we notice and we see and are moved by the suffering of people. Compassion for the weak begins with this Christ-like response of empathy when we see the suffering, we see the struggle of other sinners. We see their pain, and something inside of us is moved. Something takes hold of us and affects us in some way. And instead of moving away from weak people, because again, so often we're just too busy, or we're too self-absorbed, instead we follow Jesus' lead by moving towards weak people by moving towards suffering people. So what happens next? What happens in our story after King Jesus shows compassion and he heals the sick? told Jesus does something truly extraordinary. He provides enough food for a small city of people. In Jesus' day, this would have been a significantly large city. And he does something that wouldn't have looked immediately impressive. He just commands the people to sit down. Have the disciples ask about food. He says, well, you give them something to eat. He takes ordinary, plain fish and bread, five loaves of bread, two things of fish. He blesses them. He breaks them. He gives it to his disciples. And this is hardly would not have been enough food to even feed the disciples, but God's miraculous, incredible power now are going to be revealed in Jesus. And you almost get the impression that maybe people didn't immediately perceive what was happening as it, as it happened. The food just passed out. But as it's passed out and distributed, it multiplies tenfold, a hundredfold, maybe even as much as a thousandfold. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And hungry, tired people eat, and they eat and they eat until they can't eat anymore. Notice that Jesus doesn't just give them just enough to make it to the end of the day. He provides this enormous feast for thousands of people that has piles and piles of leftovers, enough to fill 12 baskets, we're told. The fact that Jesus provides so much for his people, enough for 12 baskets of leftovers, tells us something very simple, but something very important. Jesus abundantly supplies enough 
for his people through himself and through the gifts of his kingdom. This is the truth behind the pattern we so often see in the Gospels and the manifestation of God's power through Jesus creating this abundant supply of something good for his people. You can think about the disciples' miraculously large catch of fish that we see twice in the Gospels. Or Jesus creating this enormous supply of wine that would be enough to serve in a huge wedding party. Jesus does all these things because he wants us to see that his kingdom is a kingdom of abundant life. It's a kingdom of abundant provision. So people of God, do you believe this is true today? That Jesus will abundantly supply what you need? It's a hard truth to grasp on a lot of days, isn't it? Because each and every day we feel deprivation pushing on us. Each and every day, all of us, we feel a cry of need forming inside of us somewhere. We pray things like, God, I need, I need to be able to provide more for my family. Or maybe we pray things like, God, I need help. My marriage is in trouble. Maybe some of us pray things like, God, I'm so depressed and I'm so anxious that I don't, I don't know how I can function just today. And so in the midst of all these struggles, in the midst of all of your needs, God wants you to hear him speaking to you in Jesus, saying to you, Jesus is enough. He is enough in the gifts of his kingdom. They're enough for what you need. It's such a vital truth for us as Christians also because a big part of Satan's kingdom always involves trying to deceive you into believing that evil can give you what you want to supply what you think you need. So this means we fight the lies of Satan. We fight the world and the flesh by clinging to God's promise that Jesus will abundantly supply enough for you for what you need. You will find the power to fight a wide variety of sinful things in your life by trusting that in King Jesus' kingdom, none of his children are left alone. None of them are left to fend for themselves. King Jesus will never stop nourishing you. He will never stop caring for you no matter how difficult your circumstances, no matter how fierce the sin and the temptation you fight. This is one of those fundamental Christian truths we need to be constantly telling ourselves and each other over and over and over again. All right, what else do we see in our passage? Again, I want us to think about this meal that Jesus provides here. I want us to think about it in contrast to the meal we see in the first story that Herod gives us. In Herod's kingdom, you see a meal, don't you, of sorts. The meal that's presented represents evil and death. The most memorable picture in this first story is John the Baptist's head being presented on this serving dish, like a platter where you, you put food, as if it were some kind of sick cannibalistic part of the dinner meal. It's a very grotesque, but it's also a very powerful symbol for King Herod's kingdom and every counterfeit kingdom of evil at work in the world. What's served to people is death and sin. That's the meal. Evil looks attractive for many reasons, but we always have to keep its end game in mind. Evil's ultimate goal is to get people to feast on death and to consume death and gorge themselves on this meal until they eventually arrive in hell, the banquet of eternal death. Evil is a meal that will not satisfy. It will leave people hungry. 
It'll leave people sick. It'll make people even more sick. But notice the meal that Jesus gives. It's real food. It's real sustenance that people partake of until they are deeply satisfied. Again, nobody walks away from Jesus' meal hungry or in need of any way or unsatisfied. Now, King Herod's meal may seem very otherworldly, something that we would never see this, of course, in our own civilized, our civilized society like ours. But if we pay attention to the culture we live in, this is what we see. Herod's meal of death is being served to people all the time, all around us, in all kinds of ways. And here's what I mean. We live in a culture that consumes and serves death. And we see this in plenty of places. We can see it in the fact that we live in a society that increasingly is not interested in caring for weak people, in creating life or caring for life. It's clear we live in a culture of death when all around us sin and evil are couched in terms of people's individual rights, which must be regarded as sacred above everything else regardless of the cost, regardless of the destructive consequences. We live in a culture of death that tells people it's okay to throw out and want babies like they're trash that you don't want anymore, that you can get rid of. The issue of abortion, I think, in many ways embodies Herod's meal of death so clearly. It involves a significant number of people who want to promote the death of God's weakest and most vulnerable image bearers as a societal good. It involves people who want to attempt to disguise death so it looks more palatable, something that you could consume for a good purpose. You can see this especially in the language that abortion advocates use. Right? They don't talk about death. They talk about reproductive rights or women's health care access. But again, the point of all this is to make evil and death something people can digest a little easier. We live in a culture of death that ruthlessly exploits the marginalized, the weak, the powerless, a culture that tries to disguise sin and death by dressing it up in a hedonistic garb and promising people fulfillment and fun when in reality it just delivers destruction and pain and misery. So listen, what this means for us is that because we live in a culture of death, the church must be the unique culture of life. We should be a people who show Jesus' life in precisely the same way we see him demonstrate his life in our story that we read. We're to be a strange, peculiar people that care for the weak and the powerless. The church really should have the market cornered on empathy for suffering people. We're called to be the people of God that God describes in Isaiah. He says the Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. The church should be the place where children and the elderly are taken care of. We should constantly be crying out for the, def- for the defense of the unborn and working very hard um, for their survival. The church should be the place where battered and abused people, children, women, come, people who come with all kinds of issues and problems and needs, people with financial struggles or mental struggles come because they know the church is a place of life. That's the, pl- the place where I'm going to be loved or I'm going to be cared for. The church is the place where broken sinners come to find the life we were made to live. A life of forgiveness and healing and a place where we grow up to maturity, where we're nourished. The Apostle John gives us his own unique take on what it means for the church to be a culture of life when he says, we know that we have passed out of death 
into life because we love the brothers, a.k.a. the church, right? Whoever does not love abides in death is what John says. So in John's words, the thing that defines a people of life as opposed to a people devoted to death is love, the love they demonstrate to one another. People of God, in light of God's word today, we must ask ourselves, are we creating a culture of life here at TPC? Are we as God's church offering a culture of life to a world that only wants to serve people this rotten meal of sin and death and decay? Is our church a place where the weak and the broken feel at home because they know that the love and care they receive here will be distinctively different than anything else they could find in the world? Okay, so this morning we've talked about two kings and these two very different kingdoms associated with each one. King Herod's kingdom was short-lived, it's really temporary. Just a few years after overseeing Jesus' death, Herod Antipas gets on the wrong side of some really important people, and he's banished to Gaul, modern-day France. He disappears into historical obscurity. He's never to be heard from again. King's Herod kingdom is really just one of, of dozens, thousands, many physical manifestations of Satan's kingdom, which is a kingdom of death and misery, a kingdom with a defeated and dying king, a kingdom that's doomed to fail. The story of Matthew's gospel culminates in King Jesus triumphing over the kingdom of Satan and evil through his own death and resurrection. What initially looked like a certain defeat for Jesus becomes his greatest display of dominion over every kingdom in opposition to his reign and his rule. We can see this in John's death in our passage. It's really just a foreshadowing of of the means by which King Jesus will conquer Satan and evil by having his own blood spilled to the demonic rulers and authorities that could be put to open shame. So here's my last point this morning, last thing I'm going to say. Don't forget the king you serve. Don't forget the kingdom you belong to. You need to hear this honestly because it's so easy to live like we're unsure of where we belong. When I think about the things in my own life, when I think about things in the lives of others, it's obvious to me that we often forget that Jesus is our king. We belong to his kingdom. So often instead, we can so easily get sucked into this worldly mindset of Satan's fleeting kingdom of glory. We can get sucked into a mindset of self-worship like we see in Herod. If left to our own devices, we would all be people obsessed with ourselves and we would use everyone around us to promote our sad little kingdom of one, a counterfeit kingdom that's full of fleeting glory. So people of God, listen, you belong to Jesus. He is your king. You're citizens of his kingdom forever. You don't belong to Satan's kingdom of sin and selfishness and defeat. You belong to a king who's triumphed over Satan and death, a king who abundantly provides every last need of his people, a king who will never leave you. A king will never forsake you. People of God, we live like this is true. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for King Jesus and what he has done. And I pray, Father, that you would, by your spirit, help us be people that live like the king. We want to show uh, our world around us who King Jesus is and what he's like. So help us be the people you've called us to be. I pray, Father, that for the rest of our time this morning, You would provide us with the nourishment and the sustenance we need. Would you be pleased to do all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.